please stand for the reading of God's word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? In what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word. Oh, you may be seated. I pray that, I hope that if you have your Bibles with you this morning, that you'll keep them open to John chapter 6 as we walk through these last uh, verses from that chapter this morning. Uh, let's pray together as we open God's Word. God, we ask that uh, these ancient words would, would do their work in us this morning, that they would impart truth to us, uh, and Lord, that by your Spirit we would receive it and rejoice in it and find our hope and our fulfillment in it. Um, God, we pray that you would bring the gospel to bear in our lives this morning uh, through this text, and we ask that in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I don't go to the movies very often. I guess I don't go to the movies at all right now, uh, but even when life is normal, um, I don't go to the movies very often. But when I do, when Jessica and I do go to the movies, I try to always get there early, early enough to see all the previews that come uh, before the movies, because I, I like watching the previews, even though I will never see most of the movies that um, I see previews for. People get excited about movie previews for some reason, people like me, especially for mov movies that are like big budget, highly anticipated movies. Uh, when those previews get posted online, they get millions and millions and millions of views by people who want to analyze them or make theories about what's going to happen in the movie, or people who are just excited to see the movie as soon as it comes out. Um, we get hype about movies that we're excited to see. But sometimes the movies don't live up to our expectations. I'm sure you know what that is like. You've, you've watched a movie that you were excited to see, that you were excited to, to you know, be the next installment in some saga that you were excited about, and you were underwhelmed or disappointed by what you saw because it didn't live up to your expectations about, about uh, what you hoped it would be. And sometimes when people are really disappointed by the movie that they were excited about, they actually get up and walk out of the theater because it's not what they wanted or what they hoped that it would be. At this point in the book of John, Jesus has attracted a large following. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, thousands and thousands of people had gathered uh, to hear him speak. They had uh, come with excitement to meet him and to listen to his teaching. They were so fascinated, fascinated with him, actually, that they neglected their own basic needs. They didn't bring food for themselves uh, because they would rather just get there to hear his voice. And so they didn't bring food. They simply flocked to where he was. And so Jesus miraculously provided for their physical need, and he fed them all. And more than just that, 
He provided enough that everyone in this crowd of thousands and thousands was able to eat to the point that they were full and 12 baskets of leftovers were collected. Most of these people rarely, if ever, had enough food to eat that they left food on the table, let alone baskets full of food. And if they were interested in Jesus before that, now they are infatuated with him. John tells us that they actually wanted to take him and make him their king. They were so excited about him. They have an idea of what their future might look like with him in charge, and it is awesome. In the verses that follow, Jesus and his disciples made their way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd wakes up the next morning to discover that they've gone. And so they rush to boats of their own and paddle as hard and fast as they can across the sea themselves to find Jesus on the other side. They are enthusiastic followers, and John even describes them as disciples, students of Jesus. And by the end of the chapter, uh, things have changed pretty drastically. The crowd is unhappy, so unhappy that the vast majority of them get up and walk out. It's a drastic turn of events. In the span of just one chapter, the crowd that was enthusiastically chasing him wherever he goes has abandoned him, and only a small number remain, including the 12 disciples that were chosen by Jesus himself. But thousands and thousands have left. It's a picture of Jesus' words in Matthew 7 that says, The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Few remain with Jesus. The multitudes, the thousands, have left him. Today, in this passage that we're looking at at the very end of chapter 6, uh, we'll look at why they left and how Jesus responds to the situation that has unfolded. Essentially, Jesus is not what these people wanted or what they were hoping he would be. They came looking for more bread. They wanted Jesus to feed them again, but Jesus doesn't. Instead, he explains to them that he is the bread that they really need. And beginning in verse 49, which we looked at last week, he explains to these people, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What he's offering to these people is greater than the bread that they ate yesterday. Because remember, they ate to the point that they were full to bursting. There was 12 baskets of food left over. They were full, so stuffed, couldn't eat another bite yesterday. But now they're hungry again. The food that they had yesterday, the bread that was miraculously provided for them yesterday, it didn't keep them full. It was insufficient to truly address their need. Instead, it was designed to point them toward the one who could actually meet their need. Two weeks ago, I mentioned that this chapter in the book of John, chapter 6, is full of a bunch of references to Moses and to the Exodus and to the subsequent period of Israel's history that came after they left Egypt. And Jesus points to that history right here again to make an important point. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, he reminds them, and they died. After God brought the Hebrew people out of Egypt, where they had been slaves for four centuries, they're walking across the desert toward the land that God had promised to give them as a home. 
They had no other hope than to depend on the continuing provision of God for their survival. They, they, don't, have, they, they don't have farms, they don't have livestock, they don't have the things that they would need to, to just simply survive their, their trek across the wilderness. They have to depend on the continuing provision of God to survive. And while they're going, he miraculously provided for them along the way with food called manna that literally fell out of the sky every morning. And it saved them for a day every day that they ate it, but eventually they still died. Just like the bread that Jesus gave this crowd at Capernaum, it pointed forward to something else, to something greater. It looked forward to something else that God would provide, which would be an even greater provision. It anticipated the bread of life, which is Jesus himself. But there's another reference to God's provision in the wilderness here in chapter 6. Three times in this chapter, we're told that the crowds who are listening to Jesus speak were grumbling amongst themselves. They were murmuring their disapproval of Jesus and whispering among themselves their condemnation of him. At other times in the Gospel of John and all the Gospels, people speak openly about their frustration with Jesus. The Pharisees confront him publicly and often. But here, in John chapter 6, the people are grumbling. It's a word that only comes up four times in the Gospel of John, and three of them are right here in chapter 6. John is making a point here. He's reminding us of another time when God's people grumbled against his provision. The Greek word in question here is an interesting one. It's guguzo, which I felt like I needed to share with you this morning because it's such a funny word. Uh, so if you're interested in knowing the translation of the word grumbling, it's guguzo. I thought you should know that. And it's only used a handful of times in the whole Bible. In, in the Old Testament, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was used in the first century, um, we should be unsurprised to discover that almost every single time this word is used, it's used to refer to the Hebrew people grumbling against God after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They were disappointed with his provision. They were unsatisfied with what God had given them to survive and have life. It wasn't what they wanted. It demanded, God's provision demanded that they continue to trust him, to continue to provide what they needed to survive, which they often failed to do. In Exodus chapter 15, literally three days after crossing the Red Sea, the people come to a natural spring in the desert. But the water in the spring was bitter, and so they couldn't drink it. And they grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Apparently, they have forgotten uh, how God transformed the entire Nile River into a river of blood, or how just three, literally three days ago, he parted an entire sea for them to walk across safely. They seem to have forgotten. They have a very bizarre short-term memory loss situation going on here where they seem to have forgotten that God has a way with water and, and making it bend according to his will. And they grumble, saying, what shall we drink? So God miraculously purifies the water in the spring so that they will have something to drink. But then just one chapter later, a couple weeks later in their walk, in chapter 16, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, saying, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us up out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
So God makes it rain bread from the sky. But before long, they are grumbling again. In Numbers 11, the very same word is used, and the people cry out, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing but all this manna to look at. These people are gold metal grumblers. They're really masters of the craft of whining. God has provided for them at every turn. He has demonstrated not only his love for them, but his power to give them everything that they need. Yet they grumble. They will apparently never be satisfied. The point becomes clearer with each complaint. The natural disposition of these people to God's provision is disapproval. It's against their nature to receive God's blessing with joy. And here in John 6, we see a very similar situation unfolding. Jesus has provided for these people. He has demonstrated his care and his compassion for them and the power that he has to back it up. And he's explained that the provision of this bread, this meal that he gave them yesterday, just like the manna, was simply an anticipation of an even greater provision, one which would ultimately satisfy the needs of these people. Yet, just like the Israelites in the wilderness, the people grumble. They say in the very opening verse of our passage this morning, in verse 60, that this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What they mean is that this is a harsh or offensive thing that Jesus is saying. They have just about had it with Jesus at this point. The crowd turns on him so quickly that we are left wondering what in the world happened. They just chased him across a lake. They sailed across the Sea of Galilee to find him, and now they're ready to leave. What in the world happened? The theologian, the theologian Don Carson, in his notes on this passage, suggests that there are four reasons that the people have found Jesus' teaching to be so offensive that they are ready to walk away from him. These are the hard words of gospel hope that Jesus has been preaching. They are the announcements of God's good provision, but they are not what these people wanted to hear because their natural disposition to God's provision is the very same as their ancestors was before them. Jesus' words are met with disapproval, with disdain, and with contempt. Because first, the people wanted more bread than what the bread was pointing them towards. As Bruce pointed out last week, the crowd is still looking to satisfy their physical hunger. Uh, Jesus told them in verse 20, 26, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They wanted to make him king, not because he is the king of kings, but because he gave them bread. They have followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee because he fed them. So they didn't really want Jesus, they wanted the bread that he could give them. Second, they were offended at Jesus' repeated suggestion that he is greater than Moses. He told them that the bread provided under Moses' leadership was ultimately insufficient because people ate it and they still died. But the bread provided in himself was the bread of eternal life. He said, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, he says in verse 58. Jesus is making the point in this lesson in Capernaum 
that Moses, one of the greatest heroes of Judaism, existed solely to anticipate Jesus, the sustenance that he would provide and the deliverance that he would carry out. Third, they are offended because they do not understand Jesus' teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I don't think it's very hard to understand, to get into their mindset and understand why this one was an issue for them. The Old Testament makes it very clear that spilling human blood is a terrible tragedy that offends God because human beings are made in his image and their blood is precious. And so the idea of eating human flesh is abominable. It's an abominable thing to consider even apart from the law. People heard Jesus make this announcement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they are grossed out by it. It was a confusion that persisted for some time. In documents that have been discovered from the second century, Christians were accused publicly of cannibalism because people heard them talking about eating the body and blood of Jesus in communion. And just as they didn't understand the sign of the bread and what the bread was pointing them towards, they don't understand what Jesus is pointing to in his teaching about receiving him as the bread of life. Lastly, and most importantly, they do not want to relinquish control of their salvation. Jesus told the crowd explicitly in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. For these people, this is surely a very confusing idea. Yesterday, they left their houses to come and seek Jesus. By their own will, they came to look for him and they found him. They even sailed across the sea in pursuit of him the next morning, finding him in Capernaum because they wanted to. And now, Jesus is saying no one follows him except those who are drawn by the Father. They must have scoffed at this when Jesus said it. But they haven't come to seek Jesus as much as they have come to seek another meal. The only people who will truly seek Jesus rather than the meal are those whom God will draw. These are the reasons that the people were offended and pushed to the point that they were ready to abandon Jesus altogether. And they are the same things that challenge the foundations of our faith, just like they did for these people at Capernaum. We are tempted to look at Jesus more for what he can give us than for who he is. When our requests are not answered in the ways that we had hoped, we are tempted to wonder if God cares or if he is even listening. We have a hard time treasuring Jesus as ultimately greater than the other things that we love. It's certainly easy for us to misunderstand or confusing, confuse the teaching of Scripture in a way that misrepresents what it actually says and what Jesus actually taught. These are issues that are not easily set aside. We wrestle with the very same concerns as this crowd did. They threaten to break our faith or prevent it from ever taking root in our hearts. And in fact, Jesus is saying here in this in these closing words of chapter 6, that apart from God's work in our lives, that would be the case for every single one of us because no one comes to Christ apart from the work of God to draw him there. But that idea, along with these others, has troubled these disciples and thousands who came chasing Jesus across the sea. And in these last verses of John 6, we see how Jesus responds to these very serious concerns that these people have. He knows as John points out to us in verse 61, that the people are upset. Even though no one is confronting him directly, Jesus perceived that they were grumbling, and he asked them, do you take offense at this? 
It's not a question that he's expecting them to answer. Instead, rather than placating them or backpedaling the things that he's been saying, he raises the stakes and says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Most scholars think that this is a very subtle reference to the crucifixion that is coming about a year from this scene that's taking place in John 6, because often words like ascent in the book of John refer to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Jesus will return to glory, to his throne room, to exaltation, and to his rightful seat at the right hand of the Father. But the, ga- the, the path to get there will pass through the cross and his tomb. His ascent to glory will come through suffering and sacrifice. This is an even more contemptible idea to those in Capernaum that day. It's a concept that Jewish listeners had no category for. Their Messiah was supposed to be a liberator, a strong leader, a king who would keep them well-fed and protected. So Jesus' death will ultimately prove in their eyes that he was not the Savior, but a sad imitation of one. Even his closest followers, the 12 disciples, simply reject the idea that Jesus will suffer and die. In Matthew and Mark, both of those gospel writers record moments when Jesus told the 12 disciples in simple terms that he would be arrested and tried and abused and executed. Yet the disciples both fail to comprehend what Jesus is saying and reject the notion outright. Matthew 16, 22 says that Peter took Jesus aside after Jesus had explained these things to them and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It was an absurd notion that the Messiah would suffer and die. So Peter actually rebukes Jesus for saying such crazy things. Paul writes, The word of the cross The idea of Jesus' crucifixion, that God would become man, that he would be as a Messiah, a suffering servant of those he came to save, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is a simply ludicrous idea in their ears that the God of the universe would become the servant of all and that he would allow such dishonor to tarnish his anointed one. They simply would not stand for it. So the students lecture their teacher about what is right and about what ought to happen because it is human nature to reject God's provision because it conflicts with what we want and what we think is right. The cross is folly except for those whom God has drawn to faith in Christ because it is human nature to disapprove of God's provision just as it was for ancient Israel, just as it was in Capernaum, and just as it is among us. So Jesus continues, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some among you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. The word translated granted in this passage is used all over the Bible, over 400 times, actually. And it's a, it's a common word with, which, is, which is used in a bunch of circumstances. It has what we, what we call a broad lexical range. But in every case, it signals that something is being given. God grants that the rains fall on the earth, according to Job 5. It is the word that Jesus used when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And it is the word that Jesus used on the night of the Last Supper, which, in which he said, this is my body given for you. The idea is pretty straightforward here, I think, even if it's hard to truly understand. God is the one who gives faith by his Spirit. He grants that some will understand what Jesus teaches and believe. He grants that some will come to Christ. And if it weren't for that, not a single person would believe. No one would be saved. And that's why Jesus says the flesh is no help at all. Apart from the Spirit at work in people, no one, not a single person in that crowd, would have come to Christ in faith and hope. None would trust him. None would follow him. None would worship him. And neither would we. It is a hard saying. We agree with the crowd on that one. It raises all kinds of questions that Jesus does not answer here. But here is the significance of this for each of us. At some point in your life, if you were a Christian, you came to a turning point. A moment in which you suddenly understood that something was different. When you began to see yourself honestly for the first time, when you, when you were grasping for the very first time that there was something wrong that you would never be able to fix. When you first understood first had a, a, the beginning of an understanding of Scripture's teaching that the human heart is desperately sick, when you first understood that sin was a burden that you simply could not escape from, and the moment when you realized that God himself had made a way for you to be free, that Jesus had come as an atoning sacrifice for your sin in order to set you free from what you couldn't escape on your own. And perhaps someone standing in a pulpit, just like this one, encouraged you to ask Jesus into your heart or to be the Lord of your life, and you trusted in the gospel. You believed in the name of Jesus Christ, and you became a Christian, and it felt like you were taking the very first step out of captivity and into freedom. You were baptized, and you began to follow Christ. And looking back, you think of that moment as a beginning. But rejoice in knowing this morning that long before you invited Jesus into your heart or committed to follow him, long before you trusted him or believed in his name, long before the moment in which you first began to grasp that there was something wrong that you couldn't fix, long before that moment, the Holy Spirit was at work in your heart to plant the seeds of faith that it would nurture and cause to grow. The flesh is no help at all. If we take a step toward Jesus, it is because God is graciously drawing us there. Nothing we have, nothing we bring to the table is helpful in coming to know Christ. All we bring to the table are liabilities. We depend fully on God's gracious intervention, the holy interruption in our lives that caused us by the movement of God's Spirit to look to Jesus in hope. It is a hard saying. For many, it is too hard, too harsh, too offensive. For some of you, this is the idea that threatens to break everything, that makes you consider walking away from Jesus entirely. It is exactly what the crowds in Capernaum did. After this, John tells us in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Thousands left. 
this was the breaking point. Jesus is teaching that our salvation is entirely in God's sovereign hands was the last straw. But it is part of the gospel. And it is good news. Because knowing this dissolves our fear. The famous reformer, Martin Luther, spent much of his life as an Augustinian monk. It was a strict Catholic vow, and Luther took it more seriously than anyone. He was more committed than anyone. He spent days and nights in prayer and in service and in ascetic practice, sometimes going days without food or water in order to demonstrate his resolve to be a godly man. He lived day in and day out on a warpath, rooting out the sin in his life. And he constantly feared that it would not be enough. He feared that his prayers were not sincere enough or that he was not faithful enough. He would spend hours and hours and hours in confession, racking his brain, trying to avoid accidentally omitting anything. He feared that he didn't believe truly enough or follow Christ closely enough. He feared that his repentance was flawed. And as he wondered whether he was actually truly remorseful for his sin or simply that he wanted to avoid God's judgment. He was tortured day in and day out as he feared that it would not be enough. Until one night, he was reading the book of Romans and he came to verse, chapter 1, verse 17, which declares that the righteous person shall live by faith. And Luther wrote concerning this verse, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And the rest of his life was never the same. He became a man at peace with God, knowing that God's love for him was enough, that it was sufficient, and knowing that God never fails to bring those whom he has called into the kingdom of his Son. We can truly rest in knowing that we bring nothing. We bring nothing to God for our salvation, but that instead we live in the faith that is a gift of God. We are free of the fear that our effort will be enough, that our prayers will be sincere enough, or that our contrition will be sufficiently heartfelt. And we can begin to worship in true joy rather than out of obligation to satisfy a requirement. The 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon said that if it was up to us to draw ourselves to Christ and keep us there, I think I should be, of all men, the most miserable, he says because I should lack any ground for comfort. It is good news, even if it is a hard saying. But we must not misunderstand Jesus' teaching here in this passage. He is not saying that we go on autopilot as Christians. That's what a lot of people who reject this doctrine often say. Well, why would we share our faith with anyone if God is going to sovereignly call people anyway? He's going to do the work. Why, why do I need to worry about it then? Or why would I strive for spiritual maturity as a Christian if God is just going to do it in me anyway? Jesus asked the 12 disciples in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? He is not asking because he is uncertain of the answer. Three times in this passage, we are reminded that Jesus knows the minds and the hearts of people. He is not asking because he needs to know the answer. He's asking because they need to say it out loud. They need to take hold of what they've been drawn to. And Peter does. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Unlike the crowd that has turned away from following Jesus, Peter and the rest of the 12 disciples have begun to understand something, that there's nowhere else to go, no one and nothing that offers the hope that Jesus offers. But before they start feeling proud that they have stuck with Jesus, he reminds them, did I not choose you, the 12? They aren't here sticking with Jesus while others leave him because they are more clever than the thousands who left. They are here because Jesus called them to be here. All 12 of them, even Judas, the one who Jesus calls a devil and who he knows will go on to betray him. That's how this scene ends. That's how the sort of saga of John chapter 6 ends. Not with Peter's triumphant declaration that Jesus is the Holy One of God, but with Jesus' second prediction in just a few lines that he will be rejected by Jesus and betrayed by him. It seems like kind of an odd downer to, to end this chapter on after hearing Peter's words here. But one thing I think is manifestly on display in these final lines of John 6. Jesus is sovereign, and nothing will disrupt or, or derail his plan of salvation for those whom he has called. Everything that is happening is happening according to Jesus' plan. Even Judas's eventual betrayal is part of what God intends, and Jesus knows it. There are a couple of conclusions I think we can draw from this passage as we close this morning. First, I think it's worth noting that Jesus' goal was not to get the, big, the biggest crowd to follow him. In this scene, literally thousands leave him, ultimately because of what he was saying. They didn't like it. They grumbled about it. They were angry that Jesus would say what he is saying. But Jesus does not change his message to suit the preferences of his audience in order to convince them to stay. It's an important thing, I think, for us to observe and understand as we understand that we are sent into the world to preach the gospel. We will be tempted to gloss over things that we think people won't like or to avoid topics that we think might make people turn away. We will try to make Jesus as attractive as possible, making sure to highlight the aspects of his character that we think will make him popular. We will be tempted to avoid hard topics like sin and judgment or hard passages like the ones that deal with predestination and God's sovereignty. But that is not what Jesus does at all. He never shies away from speaking the truth, but always does it in love and with careful attention to who he's talking to. He preaches the gospel differently to the scorned and troubled woman at the well than he did to the curious scholar Nicodemus. And now in Capernaum, he has explained the meaning of the bread that he gave to this hungry crowd. He is nuanced in his presentation of the gospel, and he's always aware of his context. But when the crowd starts to murmur and grumble, Jesus does not shy away from the truth, even when he knows it will cause many to walk away. When we gloss over things or try to make Jesus more attractive and culturally acceptable, we are ultimately trusting in our strategy more than we trust in the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on the hearts of those who have been called by the Father. Jesus didn't do that, and neither should we. Lastly, uh, this passage, I think, ought to inspire in us joyful worship. Reading these final lines of John chapter 6, I think it's easy to think, 
that we would have been among those who stayed. Even as thousands around us walked away, we tell ourselves we would have stayed with Jesus. But in hearing Jesus' words in this passage, I hope we understand that if we were there and if we had stayed, it would only be because of the grace of God to keep our feet planted right next to Jesus. No one, not even the 12 disciples, stayed because of the strength of their resolve or because they had perfect faith. Even Peter, who says, where shall we go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life, and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Even Peter would go on to deny even knowing Jesus out of fear for his safety. If you are a Christian, if you are following Christ, it is because of God's grace to draw you there. Left to ourselves, we would have been in the crowd that walked away. But in his love, God grants us the strength to persevere in faith. So let us, like Luther and Spurgeon before us, praise God for his merciful intervention in our lives, which would otherwise be void of faith and gospel hope. God has brought us here. God will keep us here, and God will see us through. It is a hard word, but it is good news. Let's pray together. God, we um, are humbled as we read these words from John 6 this morning. Humbled because we um, reflect on the fact that um, though we look back at moments in our lives in which we said, Lord, be the Lord of my life or come into my heart. Uh, God, we're humbled because we, we, we know that if we, if we got to that point, it's because of your grace to bring us there. It's your, it was your grace that brought us to the point that we desired Jesus at all. And so this morning, God, we we turn toward you in worship, in humble, God-glorifying, grace-exalting worship. And we ask that you would continue to do your work in us, that by your Spirit we would be people more and more every day who say, where else would we go? These are the words of eternal life that Jesus speaks. We will set our hope on them and on him. Make us people who trust in you, God, and who rejoice in your gospel. We ask these things in the name of your Son.